the magic kazoo, you will know and you will all understand that we are ready to... trouble is of course sometimes you're just you're just too ready that's the difficulty too ready and so once again we tell you that at the sound of the magic kazoo we're ready to go <laughs> you know there's something very irritatingly maddeningly true about a kazoo i think kazoo a kazoo in a, in a, in a very real way don i think it takes the human voice it takes music it takes it all and puts it together in one almost unbelievably, realistically irritating package. No, I really do. Listen. Now, admit it now, the, the, the kazoo just played that way sounds more like a human being than the human being's voice talking. Oh, really? There's a funny thing about that. Uh, sure, you say, well, you listen to a human being talk, and he's a human being, but not necessarily. I think that the kazoo is a kind of an amalgam of all of us. It, uh, it, it's a... Uh, 
from the famous green plastic roof of the Hotel Watanabe in downtown Canton, Ohio, we bring you Blue Watson and his magic kazoo. <laughs> You know, speaking of magic kazoos, I, I have to report this before we go any further. That once in a while, an, an event, an act occurs that is so felicitously right, so absolutely true and, and real, as, as uh, Hemingway would put it, a true, real act of, of truth, that you just can't ignore it. Do you know that the other day in Collingswood, New Jersey, the heart of the pizza state... <laughs> Right in the heart of of, uh, of Drive-Insville, right in the heart of it all, on, on Route 130, a truck dropped 1,800 bottles of Pepsi-Cola. Uh, yeah, and for about for about 15 minutes, the entire the entire neighborhood was awash in the juice of togetherness. It was awash in the veritable bloodstream of the uh, what do they call them? Uh, who, is it? who are those guys that drink that stuff? That's right, the sociables. And uh, I mean, the, the fact that it was a it was a truck dropping eighteen hundred uh, bottles of Pepsi Cola, I think, was much better than if it was eighteen hundred bottles of milk. And uh, it's certainly far more of a tragedy. I can just see the people as they're washing down the. But you know, speaking of, of great truck moments, uh, I remember one time uh, seeing an incident. Of course, did you hear about the thing that happened up near uh, Trenton here? Of, of oh, was, I think it was about in the middle of the fall. Uh, I read, read this piece, and I don't know whether I even reported it on the air or not, but it was a great moment of truth. Uh, there was a guy driving one of these big Heinz 57 variety trucks, and it was loaded right to the gunnel with ketchup. Uh, now, I don't even have to tell you the rest of it, but <laughs> this is what happened. <laughs> he is going over a set of railroad tracks out there when the, when the thing conked out. Now, uh, he, he couldn't get it started, and he didn't know what to do. He didn't know whether to desert the truck uh, and make a run for it or whether to try to get it started. Well, it was suddenly decided for him when he hears, ooh, ooh. He hears coming around the bend this fantastic diesel. Well, he scoots over to one side of the truck, and he was in this big cab, and he's going to hop out the other side when, ooh, ooh, he hears coming from the other way another, another one. At, at, he, there he is. So he decides to ride it out because the cab was well over, you see. He decides the best thing to, and boom, they belted that son of a gun. Oh, yeah. And, and, and believe me, for, for about 30 seconds, the entire landscape of New Jersey around Trenton was, was, was a red blur. And, uh, and the guy, of course, thought he was dead. He, he jumped out. He was in two and a half feet of ketchup. He thought he was, <laughs> he was staggering around. Of course, he wasn't scratched. But, the, but both engineers in, in, in each train figured that they'd hit the jackpot. I mean, when... <laughs> That's a very macabre story, but but uh, nevertheless, uh, it, it was a very funny. Uh, there it was, you know. It was it was right out of slapstick. You know, speaking of, of of trucks, I remember seeing one, which will remain. It'll remain to my dying day as a great moment in in, in American traffic history, at least in my own personal experience. Uh, out in in the in the area around Hammond, out in Midwest, out around Chicago and Gary, as you probably are aware. 
This is a tremendous collection of railroads. It's like every railroad in the country has descended on this one little part of the of the of the of the landscape. Every railroad comes in there, as you know. That goes it goes through Chicago. Every last railroad. It's like a it's like the middle of a spider's web, and and uh, so. There are two things that a guy in, in Indiana knows, that, that at least in that area. You're either always going over railroad tracks or over viaducts. They're, they're just no underpasses. They're all viaducts, and they're all railroad tracks constantly. You're going over and, uh, and, and around and everything else. Well, one day, I am coming home from school, and I'm in a car, and I'm driving this car, and I'm driving along. There's about nine other guys in the car. And we were coming along over a, a, a long, long, gradual, but at the same time somewhat steep overpass, uh, a viaduct, they call them out there, that went over an entire freight yard, fantastic freight yard. You could just see it down. It's called the hump. Uh, to those of you who, don't, you, you who know the railroad world, the word hump, to go over the hump or around the hump is a big is a big thing in, in railroading. So down below us there must be eighty seven thousand tracks. You know, it's what they used to call when when you heard in the newsreels and they heard about war bulletins, they were always bombing an important railhead. Well this is a railhead. This is a, a really important one that's just outside of Chicago. And every railroad in the country goes through this place. So here was a viaduct that had just been built over this thing. Tremendous. The thing was about a mile and a half long and it would gradually go down on both sides and then go over and under some more railroad tracks and so on. So we're up at the top of this thing going along and there's a whole line of cars going down. They're all, all the guys are coming home from work and there's a line of guys going out to work. And down below us, right at the base of the viaduct, Don, is this tremendous truck route, a great big almost like US-1 would be here, you know, a great big heavy travel artery that's filled with every truck in the world, every truck in creation is going past there. Well, we, we're riding along and I am coming down this hill. And so down below me, I can see the stoplight. It has changed to red. So, all right, I, I throw the car back in second, you know, I'm, I'm shifting down. You know, we had these kind of breaks where you had to put, everybody had to put his feet out and drag and all that stuff, and guys would wave their hands backwards out of the window and all that. I'm getting ready to throw it in reverse, you see. And all of a sudden, the guy goes, he goes past me on the inside lane. He must be going like 55, 60 miles an hour, you see. Well, he went, he goes like that, down, down, right down. I says, he's not going to stop, Flick, he's not going to make it. And we look, sure enough, and we see from our right, there's this great big truck coming. And this truck is coming along, going at, 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 at right odds. He's going at a right angle to the road that we're on. See, he's going right through. It's green. He's going through. He's, everything's okay. And this guy is going... And everybody in the line, there must have been about 8,000 of us in this, in this line of cars. You know, we, we can look down on it, you see, because we're on a slant. We can see it all happening. And we're all looking down. I could just see... I could see 6,000 pairs of eyes looking down at this thing, see. And he goes... And sure enough, at the last instant, either the clown decided that he was going through a red light... Or he decided he was about to meet his maker. We couldn't tell which. He decides suddenly, uh-oh, just then the truck is in the intersection. He sees it. He goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. He makes a couple of those wild things that they always make in these uh, Laurel and Hardy comedies. You know, they go going in between the streetcars and that. He goes, whoa, 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 a couple of times with his car. 
And as he does so, the truck driver looks out and he has this startled look on his face. Everyone sees it like a, like a scene, you know, in a movie. He looks out. We're all looking down. And this guy, this, this clown in this, in this, uh, terraplane or whatever, wow, wow, wow. He makes about three quick switches at the back end of this thing. Well, he just about made it around the back end of the truck, you see. He didn't. He just about made it, is what I'm telling you. The back end of his car made one final flip, and as it did, it whipped, you see, and it goes boom! He hits the back of his truck, and in the meantime, this truck driver had tried to get out of the way. See, he turned the wheels like that. You can see him. Well, the combination of this car belting him just like that, just a little neat little flicking belt, you know, like the end of a great big crack-the-whip line, just that combination, plus he had turned his wheel, the truck driver, plus the fact that he was going about 35 miles an hour, all of it combined, and the next thing all of us knew, here is this truck at least 15 feet in the air. It was a spectacular sight. It was just like, it was like one of those wild blocks you see on a football field where some little shrimp that weighs 150 pounds has hit Roosevelt Brown has hit him just at the right, just at exactly the right angle, you know, and he's up in the air, just the right angle. This truck goes, whoa, the back end goes up. It goes up in the air, and of course, the, the guy in the car is whipping around about four times. He goes, wow, 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 wow. And he goes right off the road, and of course, we're all watching this thing, and he goes right into a shop where they sell and make gravestones. <laughs> he hits this thing with a belt. Boom! He hits, the, he hits this little wooden shack, and the, the air is filled with angels. You know, these, these uh, marble angels and all kinds of stuff. Pow! He hits. Well, there, everything hung there for a second. The truck is up in the air, and, and it was only at that moment that I realized this truck is a tanker. It is one of those big, round tankers, you know, with a big, long, stainless steel tank that hangs on in the back of it with about 45 wheels. And it goes whoop like that. And just as it gets up in the air, all three of the big portholes on the top open up. This stuff starts pouring out. And it's a funny yellow looking. It goes like that. Well, we all, everybody in the line is stopped now for the light, and it's all happening like a giant play right in front of us. He goes, bloop, over it goes, and this stuff is going, and almost instantly, the road is, it's, it's just like, it's a sea, literally a sea. It is a sea, it, well, the truck, it must have been four feet of this stuff, because it was down at the base, you see, and there was a slight rise after that, it was a trough. And it was a sea of this stuff, and it was flowing up both sides of the road, and it was a light golden yellow. The sun was hitting it. The truck driver jumps out. You see, he is unhurt. And from where I was sitting, it looked like he was swimming upstream. You know, he's swimming and he's hollering. <laughs> and everybody in the line immediately, the word got out, you see, because in an industrial area, you never know what is going to be on the roads. You're liable to see an entire truckload of, of nitroglycerin flowing at you, you know or an entire truckload of some fantastic plutonium explosive. Nobody knows. So immediately somebody jumps out about four cars ahead and hollers, High test gas! Ah! High test! Without about 4,000 guys jump out of their cars and start running up the hill and the rest of the cars are coming down. <laughs> well, this, this is the scene. You know, all the kids, were, we're a bunch of kids in the car. You know, we're yelling and hollering. The Model A that I was driving, the brakes wouldn't hold. So I couldn't jump out. I throw it into reverse, and I try to get out of the car. And everybody is running past me going uphill when suddenly they all stop. There's a funny, there was a fantastic smell in the air. It was a smell of just, boo, a great big wave of smell hit us. 
And it was unmistakable. Immediately, guys started to turn green. And everybody started to turn around. It was an entire truck. It must have been 400,000 gallons of banana oil. Banana oil. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, uh, everybody sort of turned around, and, and it was the first time anybody in modern history had seen an entire lake of banana oil. Now, banana oil was a very promising... Speaking of banana oil, this is WOR-AM at FM, New York. And uh, banana oil is an old expression out in the Midwest. I don't know. Do they ever use that around here? They'd say, ah, oh, banana oil. You know, all that kind of, ah, oh, banana oil. Well, suddenly we were confronted with a sea of banana oil. And about three cars had come from the right and a couple of cars had come from the left and had, had not been able to stop. You know, all of a sudden, and you ought to see what you, how you skid on banana oil. Let me tell you. Gee, you know, the guys are going around and they're trying to get out of their cars and it's up to the running board in banana oil. You know, it's very embarrassing to look down and see banana oil. You can't wait out in banana oil. Well, here, here's banana oil. And of course, immediately, immediately after that, the houses and the stores are all around there. It was an industrial area. There's all these shacks and houses, you know, industrial places, little red uh, tenement houses. I mean, people started to pour out of their houses. What they wanted, banana oil, I don't know. But you see, wherever there's an accident, people want it free. That's where you get it free. So they're, they're running out of the houses with pans and ladles. They've got buckets. They've got thermos jugs. Some guys are out there with their hats. They're scooping it up. They are scooping up banana oil. To this day, I can't figure out what they're going to do with banana oil. Raw unadulterated banana oil and they're down there scooping up banana oil well with that flick says let's get some banana oil you know <laughs> let's get it in free well i said what are you going to do with banana oil he says well, well you make airplane glue out of it it's banana oil make air airplane with banana oil well there it was and, and and you could hear in the distance firemen coming well they all arrived the firemen the cops nobody could do anything because it was at the changing of the shift time you know there were nine million cars behind us, eight million cars ahead of us. Everybody is stuck, and there is a sea of banana oil with about four cars, a couple of guys standing on the hoods of their cars. They say, get me out of here! Hey! And, and the truck driver has swum the shore now, and there is a guy. They're trying to pull him out of a pile of busted headstones over there on the left. Well, we're down there. We're looking at this scene. And, and with that, the firemen arrive. Well, this this was probably the most peculiar picture of all. Gigantic hooking ladders and all that stuff, chemical squirting things and fomite trucks and all that are down there. And the firemen don't know what to do. They're standing around and they're standing by the shore there, you know, immediately, whatever it is, the, you know, it's a banana oil shore and little waves and ripples and, and there it was. And somebody hollered, well, pull the sewer, quick, do something with the sewer down there. And then somebody hollered, no, you're going to sewer, it's going to cause... The, the rumor got out that banana oil burns if it goes... <laughs> It does, I guess. Does it, Don? Does it? I don't know. There were all kinds of rumors. Well, all we could do was one by one, the cars turned around and backed up, and, and went, we went, took the long way home. Well, let me tell you, very interesting thing, the, the aftermath of the banana oil, the banana oil flood, the banana oil fiasco, that I arrived back at my home, which was about three and a half miles from where this thing occurred, and everybody around that area was saying, what is that funny smell in the air? Banana oil has one of the most pungent, penetrating, and long-lasting stinks in the world. Excuse the expression. It is really, and it makes you, it really is it's a sickening smell after a while. And, and everyone could smell this banana oil. And, of course, the word got out that the banana oil war had started and the big thing down there. And, and it was, well, for over three months, 
I want to tell you, for an entire summer, that entire neighborhood, oh, of course, I mean, it's ridiculous. If you went down by the hump, you, you, your eyes would start watering immediately. But for, for three or four months, I would say at least three or four months, you could smell banana oil in the air for miles around. It completely knocked out the Griselli Chemical Company. It knocked out the Standard Oil Pipes, who did pretty good themselves. They had a special machine that did nothing but produce aroma for the neighborhood there. In fact, one of the things that made the greatest aromas of all in that neighborhood was the place, it was part of one of the big refineries there, where they made insecticide. Uh, do you recall when, when, uh, when they used to have the flip guns? Now, of course, it's all bomb things, you see. Well, they had these guns, the flip gun stuff, and every big refinery was also in the insecticide business. Well, well one, of this, the, one of these particular refineries, which was, uh, which was uh, a well-beloved refinery, one of them had a particularly smelly, uh, an unbelievably smelly uh, uh, insecticide. It did not smell like any of the others. And, and you could smell it all summer. It was when they really turned down the juice. You know, they really worked. That's terrible. It, 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 your eyes would water. You'd walk around. Then you'd walk a little bit further, and you'd smell Griselli, which was making, uh, I don't know what it was making, rotten eggs, I think. They were in the rotten egg business. And uh, you'd smell that. And then, then a couple of, couple of doors down, there would be gigantic piles of sulfur. See, I suspect this entire neighborhood was in league with the devil that they were providing with brimstone and all the rest of it. Yeah, there'd be enormous piles of sulfur, about four or five, uh, five, six, seven stories high. And have you ever seen kids riding on flexible flyer sleds on sulfur piles? Well, I have. Yes, sir, you're looking at a guy who's watched kids climb to the top of a sulfur mountain and ride down on a sled. <laughs> Until they got chased out, of course, by the by the watchman. Speaking of do you have that thing, or did they take it out again? Took it out, huh? Okay, well, we have... Uh, let's get on with the haiku here. Uh, we have a... Uh, you know, I think this is uh, this is a great... Uh, I, I'm usually anti-contest. I You know, contests make me break out in a rash. Uh, really do. I've never won one, and I've never really uh, advocated one. But the idea of a haiku contest, I think, is a great idea. The, this is... This is a big hang-up in Japan, you know. And your haiku does not have to be reverent. Uh, there's no, you know, there's a lot of sneaky haiku. Uh, Isa, for example, was a very sneaky haiku poet. And if you don't know anything about haiku, they, they are deceptive. Believe me, if you think they're simple to write, uh, everyone thinks because they've only got three lines and 17 syllables, that's the easiest thing to write. Well, actually, that makes it the hardest. And uh, here's a sample haiku. Uh, let's see. Let me pick one here. Let's see. Uh, the wild geese having gone, the rice field before my house seems far away. Uh, Seventeen syllables, three lines, and uh, you send your haiku, bad or good, to Japan Airlines Haiku Contest, WOR, New York 18. They're giving away all kinds of Sony equipment. Uh, Sony Micro TV, uh, Micro Sony AM short. By the way, that's a great one. Have you seen that little Sony AM and shortwave radio? A real piece of equipment. Anyway, they're giving these awards, and if you would like to, to enter this thing, send your, your haiku to Japan. You don't have to buy an airline trip to Honshu either to get it. Just uh, send your, your haiku to Japan Airlines Contest, WOR New York 18. And the haiku has to be on the subject of nature or a season of the year. That is necessary to qualify for haiku. You can't do a haiku about your, your, your teacher unless you bring the, the fact in that she turns green in the fall. 
or something like that. But it, <laughs> it has to have involved in it nature or the season. Important. And, and June 15th is the last day, okay? All right. Uh, now, uh, we, we've got another one here. We, you know, speaking of... It's all right. It's all right. We, we, we'll do it. We have... We have hi, Tony. Uh, we have with us tonight the Pottery of All Nations. And, uh, you know, uh, it's funny. Uh, somebody, somebody wrote... I'd like to, like to make a, a little side point here. Somebody wrote in one of the recent critiques... Boy, was there a critique on the World's Fair recently in the New Republic. Uh, as a kind of amalgam, uh, I got to go into that. But uh, he made the point that many people, uh, that, that if they w would only look over the horizon, they would see the real fair, and the real fair is New York, uh, of what it really is like in this time and age. And uh, one of the most interesting places I know of in New York, uh, just if you want to stand around and look at things, uh, is the Pottery of All Nations down on Sheridan Square. It's been there for a long time. It's kind of a landmark on Sheridan Square. It's a ramshackle little shop above a Needix or a Rikers or something. And I think you'll, you'll dig it down there. And they're open until 10 o'clock on Saturday night, and it's a great place to spend a couple of hours if you're going to make the New York scene and would like to take back something to Trenton or someplace. They have stuff from all over the world, and the prices are fantastic. There's another one on Route 4 in Paramus, which I have never seen. There's another one over on Lexington at 64th in the High Rent District. But I would recommend the one down in the village if you're going to make New York. That's the Pottery of All Nations. Okay? And they're open five nights a week. They're open late. And they're open till 10 on Saturday night. And, uh, you know. So, uh, you know, speaking of, of, uh, of the summer madness, which, uh, which I think is part of the, the Pepsi-Cola bath over there in Collingwood, New Jersey, uh, <laughs> it's funny. You know, a couple of, a couple of semesters ago, I, I, I once in a while hear an old tape that I've done. I've got all kinds of them around. And a couple of semesters ago, I recall making a, a, a comment about how within a few years, people would begin to forget that uh, that the that the Germans and the Nazis were what they were, and they will slowly begin to be colorful. They will become fascinating, interesting things, and before long, they will have the same kind of color that say the Napoleonic armies have now. You know, people are all great Napoleonic fans and so forth and so on. A big thing, and nobody knows. You know, nobody nobody worries much about what the uh, what the Egyptians thought of the uh, Napoleonic armies, you see, or what they did in Egypt. Nobody worries much about what they did in Poland and a few other places. Now they're guys with great colorful uniforms led by a colorful leader, and, you know, the whole thing has a, has a great sense of color about it. Well, well, the other night I'm walking through one of the dime stores here in Times Square. It's wild to see now that you can buy, if you want, you can buy little plastic German soldiers about to throw a potato mash or grenade. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, there they are, little guys from the, from the SS, uh, guys from the, the Wehrmacht, and they're, they're charging, you can get a Wehrmacht lieutenant who is calling to his, uh, his, uh, his squad, his, uh, his machine pistol squad to move forward to, uh, to get the Amerikaner Schwein. Uh, and, and you know, it's fascinating that they, they all, they all, they all look like they're kind of fun now. It's wild. And you can also get a group of Japanese soldiers making a bonsai charge. Now, I wonder these, yeah, with the big teeth and everything, you know, they got them all with the glasses and the whole scene and, uh, and, the, and the rotten-looking uniforms, the whole bit. And now, I wonder, with the kids buying these things, I wonder who those kids thought they were charging. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's just, now it's just sort of a charge in isolation. 
It doesn't have anything to do. I think the greatest uh, one of all is you can buy for for the kids now. And I saw one of these little squirts running around the other day. You can buy himself a complete a complete Wehrmacht uh, outfit. He gets a little uh, helmet, you know, with the with the eagle, the the imperial eagle, and the Wehrmacht colors on the side. And he has he even has the the uh, the, the famous symbolic German belt, the Gottmund's belt. Uh, which is, uh, God is with us and we're Superman, belt, is what really it says. And he can get this belt and clamp it on him with a, 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 a German uh, GI issue Luger. And, uh, <laughs> now, I spo- no, 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 that's, that's not, not so funny, you know. It is and it isn't, but it's kind of funny. And, and, and nowhere on the card that it comes on, this, uh, this kit, uh, it's all made out of plastic, do they even mention that they're German. It just says, World War II souvenirs. <laughs> they do not mention them. Of course, I wonder, I wonder whether the kid has any idea of anything about what he's wearing. And he runs around out there. And I don't suppose he has any concept at all of... Uh, I can imagine. Uh, can you imagine a truck driver, you know? Here's a truck driver, we'll say, that was in an infantry, uh, uh, an infantry probing squad who, who, uh, who spent a little time with the Third Army, you see, uh, I can see this guy. He's he's walking home from work from his bread truck route or something. He's walking in the dusk. He's walking along and his his mind is kind of dreaming. He's wondering what the Mets did today. When all of a sudden, without thinking, he looks up and in the bushes he sees this little Wehrmacht corporal and the little guy is getting his his luger. The guy instinctively hits the ground. He goes, "The medic, medic!" He's yelling. <laughs> little kid wonders what he did. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, these things can happen. Seriously, you know, guys work mostly out of out of reflex action anyway. You know, and and uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm not. I'm, I I think that in the next ten years, uh, kids will be able to buy, among other colorful costumes, a little Ku Klux Ku Klux Klan costume. Oh yeah, buy a little Ku Klux Klan, or he can get the Grand Klegel costume if he wants to. You know, because most of the costumes they sell to kids are not enlisted men. Uh, they are very careful not to make a kid from the beginning a PFC. You know, he can buy himself a colonel. You can buy a colonel in the Air Force outfit. Did you know that now? Oh, yeah. You can buy a a, uh, a genuine uh, admiral. Tell her, go get that thing now. Come on, we got to have it. Now, don't, and if she she objects, tell her, I'm sorry, we're in business too. Uh, so, uh, you know... Uh, <laughs> The the thing the thing has all kinds of connotations and probably one of the one of the most interesting ones is is an ad in the Times in the whoopee section there the silly section I suppose you've seen this one here's a clean limb looking guy and it says found in a European warehouse Rommel Africa Corps sun helmets with original insignia incredible as it may seem these World War Two helmets were just found in of all places a Belgian warehouse. Yeah, we all know what we did to Belgium. We found them in Belgium of all places. They were found there. Made in 1942 for the Desert Fox. Yes, Eric Rommel, the Desert Fox, and his African divisions, but were never shipped due to unforeseen circumstances. Never shipped. Here, expensive green. I'll say it was expensive. Oh, my God, how much we paid after all that said and done. Expensive green wool-covered cork helmets are in remarkable like new condition. No bullet holes. None of them have shrapnel holes in them. They are all new. Some of them have a little mud, and a few of them have some little bloods on them. But they wash off very easily. 
have original color Panzer Eagle metal insignia. Hey, Hitler, we will salute all Panzer divisions now. All of you together. Hey, Heil, seek Heil, or to our department of Panzer Heil Hitler. Oh, excuse me, I, I, I get carried away here. Eagle metal insignia. In a red felt shockproof liner. Now I can tell you that the shockproof liner in the box very good. Sometimes, unless you are near a very close 80 millimeter mortar goes off, then the shockproof does not work so good. However, for ordinary use in Westport, ordinary use in Darien, very good, very good. Shockproof liner, regimental letter strappings, including Jungstaffel SS on very special units. Very good thing there. Vented Peak, you can buy it much cheaper than we bought it for. Let me tell you, it's just expensive. Oh, I'll tell you how expensive it was. Oh, yeah, exactingly made headgear. One thing Rommel have is very exactingly made Africar sun helmets. And makes very good adjustable sizes, small, large, solid buy. A very good buy for four ninety five. You can now buy brand new in European warehouse Rommel Africa Corps sun helmets. My God, we have an awful time them days. Of all places, and the Belgians, you know what we do, the Belgians, for crying out loud. Oh, it's a fun thing, and all together now. Let's go. Seek Heil. Seek Heil. Seek Heil. We are saluting all the Panzer divisions. We are saluting Heil. Well, now, if you think I invented that ad, that is an ad taken right out of the Sunday Times. Two Sundays ago, you can buy yourself a Rommel Africa Corps sun helmet with regimental insignia. Now, there were certain regiments, I'm telling you, that, that, that there were instructions by certain other people I know to shoot them on sight. Take no prisoners. And I could see some poor, innocent little guy <laughs> sitting in a lake up in, up in Westport somewhere fishing, and he's wearing his Africa Corps sun helmet. Mit regimental insignia. Hey, bring it on. One, two, three, here. Ho, ho, what is this? Honeymoon hotel room service. Oh, oh. Hi, this is Robert Morrison, room uh, 1112. Hey, Mr. I... Morris, aren't you in MGM's hilarious new comedy, Honeymoon yes, Hotel? Yes, I am. Oh, would you like me to send up some champagne? No, ma'am, I've got... Mr. Glasses? No, I've got... No, bucket just... of ice, cigarettes, midnight snacks? <laughs> I have everything but a girl! But Mr. Morris, you're breaking the rules of Honeymoon Hotel. You're a groom without a girl in your room. But that's what I'm calling about. <laughs> Will you marry me? Oh, Mr. Morris. Oh. <laughs> See what happens when the bride stays home and the groom goes on a honey chasing honey. Honeymoon in Honeymoon Hotel. Oh, I can hardly wait. It's all kisses and honey with Robert Morris. Oh, yeah, but that's exciting. Wow. Robert Morris and Jill St. John in Honeymoon. Mm. Yes, indeed. Don't miss Hotel. Honeymoon. Hotel. Excuse me, baby. Don't miss Honeymoon Hotel MGM Showcase presentation starting Wednesday at selected theaters throughout greater New York and those fantastic actors. Robert Morris and Jill St. John. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, it sounds like another Doris Day cycle is underway. You know, that little cutie pie non-sex. I'll say, yeah, you know them. Oh, yes. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's funny uh, how, how you, you find your, your own predictions coming true so much that it gets to be... It gets to be a kind of a hang-up. You, you wonder what the next one is going to be. But, uh, you know, speaking of, uh, of these, uh, these Africa Corps helmets, uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, one of the things, I suppose you know, uh, that, that it works the other way. Uh, do you know that in Germany, 
if you if you go to the right places, you can find you can find U.S. Air Corps souvenirs of the great. Oh yes, of guys that were shot down. In fact, I I was taken one time in Germany. Uh, this was he's uh, very funny. Uh, this this guy uh, was uh, stationed. He had been in, in the German army, and uh, he was uh, just a private slogging around. You see, and just like privates everywhere. Uh, he wanted souvenirs of the Great War that he was in. All, all this is one of the big problems, you know, uh, in in any kind of war, is the GIs of all armies want to bring back a trophy of some kind or another. Uh, the, the the Japanese did it. Uh, we did it, of course. There's no question about it. Our our soldiers are, are probably the most souvenir conscious crowd in the world. Uh, sometimes it's called loot. Other times it's just called souvenirs. Well, uh, I, I went with this guy, and there were four or five of us. One of them, incidentally, was, was a captain in the Air Corps, and we were all going to, to dinner at this man's house. He was now a big executive. And uh, we were sitting there uh, outside of Munich, and uh, the dinner was served, and they had these fine German wines. We're drinking the wines and all that. And, uh, of course, naturally, the, the, the subject finally came up, uh, which is the subject of the subject, the, the war and all the rest of it, see. And he was telling us about how he was in this German infantry division and uh, they, they had been chased back over the Rhine and and uh, what happened to them, where, and this and that. And he was saying over there and he was uh, describing that. And finally, finally, uh, as the wine began to flow a little more and the schnapps were brought out, uh, one thing led to another. And he says, well, I would like, he says, I, he says, I, I don't know whether, he says, I don't want you to get the wrong ideas here. We were all Americans. He says, uh, but you would like to see my souvenirs. And so, sure enough, he, we went back into his, his library, his study, like, and he had bookcases set up. And there were these bookcases, just, you know, like regular bookcases with glass fronts, these old uh, European heavy wooden kind of cases with dust on them and that, and he had books all around. It was an old home. And so we started to look through his, his there they were, all, all his, his souvenirs. Well, the first souvenir that, that hit me right between the eyes there it was, a great big GI helmet, a plain ordinary GI helmet. You know, it was a U.S. GI helmet laying in there. And he had a little card there next to it. And he says, well, you see, I got this one. He says, we were coming outside of Raymogen, and we were in retreat. And we had there had been several paratroop divisions. He says, this was taken from a paratroop Division, uh, there was, a, and I, I could just see these GIs, these German GIs, uh, retreating, leaving quickly out of the, uh, the out of the neighborhood, uh, and and this guy seeing this helmet and picking it up either off. He didn't tell me, for, you know, he didn't come out right out and say, I took it off this guy that was dead there, and so there it was. Another another uh, another souvenir that I saw that he had there. He had a, a, an Air Force watch. This was an Air Force watch uh, that was taken from a, a GI, uh, from, a, from a flyer, and there it was. And, and there, you know, the old watch, it was laying there, the issue watch, and it was still running. He kept it going and everything, and he says, uh, it takes this thing, and there it was. Beautiful Air Force watch, and it was, I looked at the back, and somebody had scratched JD or JL or something in the back. Some guy's initials were scratched in the back there. And I said to him, well, well, uh, where, where did you get this one? He said, well, we were, he says, I, it's a very funny, he says, uh, actually, he says, we were just coming, I was, I was coming home, he said, actually, it was after the war, really, and there was, in the woods, not far 
from Regensburg. He says, not far from Regen, there, there was an airplane that had crashed, and uh, the, the, there was a lot of fire and so on. And we went over to look, and, uh, well, there it was. <laughs> and, and so there was another one. Uh, he had he had a, a, a U.S. 45, a service 45 that uh, had belonged to some officer, obviously, because these were not issued uh, unless uh, under certain very unusual circumstances to enlisted men. So here was an officer's 45, and he had all these various things there. Now, now uh, they were souvenirs, and it was it was, it was very eerie for me to realize that some of the stuff. That you know the stuff that you were trying became a souvenir in somebody else's. Now you think that's all he had? I'll tell you, this guy had two cases full of this stuff, various things that he had found. For example, he had an entrenching tool. He had a U.S. entrenching tool uh, that was issued a trench knife, uh, and, and he also had a U.S. canteen. And on the side it said U.S. and it was a canteen. He had brought all his stuff back. Now I know one guy. I'll tell you a little story about a guy I know who, who uh, was one of the very first people in Japan, one of the very first guys in Japan. In fact, there were about four planes. He happened to be a, a well-known radio executive type. And uh, he was sent in there and was, was the first guy in Tokyo Radio Studios. He was the guy that put the finger, laid the finger on all of Tokyo Rose's records, the discs that she was using and all that stuff, and was one of the people in on the arrest of Tokyo Rose and so on. He happened to have been a gunsmith. He was a, a wild, insane gunsmith. And, and one of the first things that happened were all the Japanese were told to bring in all their weapons, all their guns. They had to bring him all the guns. They brought in every last gun. And so he, he saw all these magnificent, many of which were not military rifles. They were sporting rifles of one kind or another, all kinds of fascinating rifles and shotguns and all sorts of uh, weird equipment. So this stuff was being destroyed. So he took about... A thousand of these things were all being destroyed, and he buried them. He literally buried them. And ten years after the war, one of his friends, the Japanese friends, went back and dug them up and sent them to him in good condition. He was a gunsmith; he knew what to do with them, how to how to seal them and cosmoline and all that. But this this business of of the, of the souvenir is a wild thing. And now now it's intriguing to find that guys who have had no connection with it want souvenirs from it. You know. And, and from, from odd, odd sources, you know, very odd sources. And so uh, it's, it's going to be, I suspect, a little weird to see a guy clomping down to the dock in some little lake in New Hampshire. He's clomping down to this little dock, you see, and he's wearing his Africa Corps, Rommel Africa Corps sun helmet. <laughs> and you know, it's funny how, how people have romanticized the Africa Corps. Uh, how they how they think of these as supermen and so on. The myth persists that the, that the myth of the Africa Superman, the Africa Corps Superman, was promulgated by Hitler himself and Dr. Joseph Goebbels in the late 1930s. That these were undefeatable, completely super soldiers. Well, of course, it was an obvious myth, a total myth. If you've ever seen 40,000 Africa Corps men running like mad, dragging their bicycles behind them, you know what kind of a myth it was. But it still persists. It still goes on and on and on and will continue to go on for probably 10 million years. <laughs> <laughs>